Good morning. Let me see, I'm going to start a clock here so I don't go 76 minutes, um, since there one isn't back there, because I have a tendency to go a little bit long, I'll do my best. Um, happy Mother's Day. Um, I'm pretty excited that I had a mom. Um, I kind of hope you all are too, and uh, thankful both for my mom, and I don't know what kind of moms all the rest of you are, but I know what kind of mom my wife is, and uh, I noticed from her that moms are incredibly hard-working, sacrificial, loving bunch. And uh, I think as moms, you have a, a kind of unique way of getting to display um, God to people because moms in kind of a unique way display um, that kind of balance of grace and discipline in a way that most other people don't. You know, as you walk with kids and you just kind of on a regular basis and plus have to put up with a husband along the way, um, you are able to display grace and discipline and love and wrath um, I think in a way that actually does display Jesus in a beautiful way if you do it well. And so I'm very thankful um, for moms. And I'd like to take a moment just as we begin to, uh, to pray specifically for moms. Heavenly Father, I thank you that uh, your son was born of a mother and that she was a wonderful example of what a mom should be. I thank you. Lord, for the moms in my life and the way I've seen uh, them live so sacrificially and loving, and I know there are so many here that have made untold sacrifices that people don't even know about, and um, that there are moms here that uh, have hurting hearts this morning um, because of children that are wandering from you. God, I pray that you would comfort them. God, that they would trust in you, that they would trust you wholly. God, I pray that uh, you would encourage us to be a people that appreciate and are thankful for mothers and encourage them in their difficult responsibilities. God, help us to be a church that, uh, that especially loves moms and treats them well. God, thank you so much for all that you're doing through us. Please display Jesus through all of us, but especially through moms. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, the, the topic we got to today on Mother's Day is spiritual warfare. <laughs> Somehow I think there's a good joke in there. Um, and on the one hand, you kind of think, well, what a, that doesn't have a whole lot to do with motherhood. But I think you're going to see that as we go on, that it actually has a lot to do with motherhood. Um, because spiritual warfare is fought in the context of everyday life. And mothers, if anybody, understand what it means to fight in the context of everyday life. Uh, hopefully not fighting their kids and fighting their husband, but uh, fighting uh, the evil one in all the things that we have to do. Now, I'd like to kind of connect us a little bit with last week as we get into um, the next passage where Paul's going to go, and I just want to kind of take you through this transition a little bit. You see, in light of all the problems in the world, um, we talked about slavery last week, and, you know, as you look around the world and you watch the news, you just see that there's all these immense problems around the world. And Paul gets done with dealing with slavery, and instead of telling them to do more or to give more, he tells them ultimately to pray more. And it's a fascinating thing that for us, we have all these tendency to kind of want to do something. And somehow to us, prayer isn't doing something, right? It's kind of like that's what you do before and after you're doing the something. But it's not the actual doing of the something. And, and Paul just has such a different perspective. He says the way that we are to fight this battle that we're in, 
Um, there's all kinds of pieces that we're going to talk about, but really where the, the fight kind of hits the ground is through prayer. He says that's what we're to do. When we look at the world, we look at all the problems in the world, when we look at slavery, um, just the, the global kind of problems that we have, ultimately it's not about us figuring out a way to do something different, but it's about us praying more. You see, because what God is ultimately wanting to do isn't just to eliminate evil, but God is about displaying himself. You see, that, that's his main purpose. As we've been going through Ephesians, he's kind of said it in a, a number of different ways, and we'll come back to it over and over again. But I want you to understand, first and foremost, spiritual warfare is about displaying Jesus Christ to the world. That his wisdom in reconciling the world and forming this one people together from all kinds of people and tribes and tongues and nations and forming them into this people, his intention in doing all of that was to display himself, was to make us into a mirror to display his wisdom and his goodness and everything that he's doing. You see, what Jesus is all about, Jesus is about global conquest. Jesus is about taking over the world. And, and there's some of you that you may hear that and just kind of like, uh, want to kind of step back. But you've got to understand that the way Jesus wants to take over the world is different than anything else you've ever heard of. Jesus doesn't want to take over the world by fighting and killing people. He doesn't want um, us to, to die so that we kill the other people. He wants us to die so that they might know the love of Jesus Christ. You see, it's a a battle of love, not of hate, right? It's a battle of faith, not of fear. That's what he wants us to do. He wants us to be a part of his global conquest, doing it his way, not our own way. You see, the blow that Jesus delivered at the cross and with his resurrection was, was the final death blow in bringing about the reconciliation of this world. But he says, but I'm leaving you and I'm giving you all authority on heaven and earth and I want you to take this message, this message of what I'm doing, reconciling the world to the ends of the earth. So the battle that was begun and really won at the cross is what we now are spreading throughout the world, that the rest of the world is still, there's world, places in the world that are still in rebellion to Jesus Christ and it's about bringing the message of the king to those places to bring them back into submission to him. And I just think we have to stop fighting God's battles in the way that is kind of instinctual to us, right? The way that we would just naturally fight the battles ends up being the wrong way. And for me, the classic example is what Jesus himself did. He decided he had this plan to kind of reconcile the whole world and send this message to the whole world. So what did he decide to do? Well, die. But before that, spend three years with 12 guys. And one of them turns out to betray him. And then he dies, I don't know about you, but that wouldn't have been my plan. Kind of, you know, if I'm drawn up as the general, I'm going to drop the plan to conquest the world. I'm not going to just pick 12 kind of ordinary guys, one of which I know is going to actually betray me, and then I'm going to die. Right? It doesn't make sense the way that Jesus wants to do things. So as we look at this passage, you're going to see that Jesus wants us to do things in a way that doesn't make sense to us. The bottom line that I want you to walk away with, well, I'm going to say bottom line, then I'm going to say like five things. So um, I'm not sure it's really a bottom line. I've got a lot to say this morning. I'll I'll do my best to keep it in a condensed way that you can uh, keep your head around it. The first thing is, for some of you who don't really believe we have a real enemy, and I want you to walk away understanding we have a real enemy, and we're involved in a real battle. This isn't just made-up stuff. This isn't kind of hocus-pocus. There's some of you that think spiritual warfare, that's kind of, you know, something from the past that it's antiquated that we've done away with, and who's this guy talking nonsense up there? I want you to understand the battle is real and our enemy is real. The second thing I want you to walk away with is God has won the battle. Our enemy is a defeated foe. God has won the battle, and he has given us his weapons to fight with. The third thing I want you to walk away with, and this is crucial, is we don't fight alone, we fight together. 
There's a tendency to look at this passage, and I've seen many people think of this as them going out and fighting. We don't fight alone. The Roman soldier that this is modeled on would never have fought alone. We fight together, we stand together, and ultimately we would fall together. We must stand together. We don't fight alone. And ultimately, I think at the end of this passage, you know you're really in the battle when you're driven to prayer. If you aren't driven to prayer, you're probably not in the battle. You can look at it either way. Read with me Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse 10. He says, finally, it's kind of the word some of you think towards the end of sermons. <laughs> this is the end of his sermon, right? So he kind of preempted you there. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication to the end that keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains and I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Heavenly Father, we are doing spiritual warfare this morning. Please take your word. And by your spirit, I pray as your spoken word goes forth, your spirit would empower it and that we would all learn and we would be changed. Do battle this morning, we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. The context, I, I don't normally kind of put points together for a sermon, but this one just kind of worked out that way, so uh, take it or leave it. Um, the theater of our warfare, where is the, the context in which our warfare is thought? That comes from the kind of the whole context of the book, but especially the immediate context of kind of chapter 5 and into chapter 6. The context for our warfare are places like marriages and parenting and all the places of submission in the church through our unity, that the place of our warfare is in everyday places, in everyday circumstances. You see, it's in all the places that we go, but especially and particularly, it's within the home. You see, marriage is a battle. Now, for some of you, um, it's a battle against the wrong person. And this is, I think, a crucial point that he's going to get to in a minute. The battle isn't against your husband or against your wife. The battle is against the evil one who is attempting to break you apart. Parenting is a battle. Being a kid's a battle. It's not against your parents, though. And parents, it's not against your kids. They're not the enemy. You have to understand it's against the evil one. Every context of submission, being a part of the body of Christ um, in your workplace, in everything that we do, being a part of our government um, submitting in all things, all the different things that God calls us to submit to, in those things, it's a battle. We battle every day in every kind of thing. But it's a different kind of fight. right? This isn't the kind of battle that you're going to think of. I'm going to use warfare language all the way through, but I just want to over and over emphasize this is not a battle of um, the typical way that you would fight. This isn't about violence and fighting. This is about struggling through submission and love and faith, it's a different kind of fight. It's about being like Jesus. So that's the context of our warfare. It's in everyday things. 
the foundation, Paul says in verse 10, right? He uses three different words right here. Strong, strength, might. He says, you have to understand that the foundation of our warfare is that it has to be in the strength of God. And as we, we get farther down into this passage, you're going to understand why. I, as I come this morning even to think about doing this, if I didn't have the strength of God, if I didn't have confidence that God's Spirit would move through his word, there's no way I would want to stand up here and talk to you because it has to be in the strength of the Lord that we do battle in any sort of way. The only way you can do battle in your family, the only way that you can battle the enemy in your marriages and your parenting and all the circumstances of life is if you have the strength of the Lord. And Paul wants to draw our attention back. He uses three of the same words that come right out of chapter 1. And I just want to read you a little bit of section. 119 is ultimately kind of where it comes out of. But just listen with me. He says, verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then he gets to verse 19, and he says, this is part of Paul's prayer for us, that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. The same words for strength he uses there. That he says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, we have to understand that part of our inheritance is that we, we have been given the power that Jesus Christ even has. You see, it's only the power of being strengthened in the Lord that as his children, as those that have been inherited into his family, we now have his power in order to fight this battle. But there's a flip side. There's some of you in this room that are not a part of his family. And I just want to warn you up front, don't even begin to think about fighting this battle. You are actually, as we're, we're going to see a little bit later, you are on the side, the wrong side, and you don't have any of the tools to fight the battle. It's those that are a part of the family that have been adopted in have now been given the weapons of our Father that we can actually fight the evil one. We have to be strengthened with the strength of the Lord. Now he tells us both at the beginning of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 13 that we need to take up this whole armor of God. Now why does he tell us that twice? Well, look at everything he says in the middle. Because in between it, he tells us who it is that we wrestle against. Right? And he tells us that we are battling the devil and all of his demonic forces. And, and these demonic forces are cosmic in scope. Of course he's going to say again, so you better put on the full armor. Right? The first time you read it, it's like, okay, put on the full armor. Because you're going to battle the devil and all the demonic forces in the heavenly realms and the cosmic powers of this earth. Now put on the full armor. You get it? That's why it tells you again, because then you realize, now that I know who I'm fighting, I'd better put on this armor. The first thing you have to see here is the Satan. You should call him the Satan. Satan is the accuser. The Satan is real. At the end of the movie, The Usual Suspects, there's a great quote. He says, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Isn't that true? Isn't, isn't that kind of the way he's portrayed in kind of our modern culture? Uh, the devil's either just kind of some nonsense or there's people that want to worship him. There's, there's all, the devil's portrayed in all sorts of ways, but he's trying to convince us he doesn't actually exist. And I want you to understand the devil does exist. He's real and he's out there and he is our enemy. And he is intelligent and he is far more sneaky and wily and nasty than you can imagine. And he is out to devour and destroy anything that is of God. We have a real enemy, and it is a real battle against him. 
You see, back in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul drew, drew our attention to this one who was the enemy, right? He says that what we were prior to Christ coming and changing us, he says that we were the ones that were following the prince of the power of the air, another name for the Satan, for the devil. The spirit, he says, that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You see, we have to understand that Satan is the one that is behind. He is the one that desires to mobilize sin in the world. He is the one, along with his minions, that is desiring to mobilize sin and to do it in your life and to do it in all kinds of people's lives. And it's not as if people are doing it against their will. You have to understand that when he says that, it's not like, oh, well, the devil made them do it. It's not their fault. No, they are complicit. We all were complicit with him up until the point that Jesus Christ saves us. Go back and read chapter 2 in the beginning. He's very clear about that before he transforms us. So our accuser, our enemy should be taken seriously, but he should not be feared and he should not be given too much credit. I want to be careful that we balance this well. You have to acknowledge that he's real, but don't give him too much credit. He's a defeated foe. As long as you're on the right side, as long as you are a children, a children, as long as you are a child of God, he is a defeated foe that does not have power over you He has no real power over you except for what you give him. You see, because the way that he operates, his schemes, and I could probably do a whole sermon just on the schemes of the devil. His schemes are lies, deception, doubt, slander, all kinds of things. He will try to get you to think all sorts of wrong things, but he has no real power over you. And we'll see that one of the first, the first piece of the armor of God is truth. And that's what combats the lies that the enemy will try to get us to think that he actually has power over us. He is the best. Now, you know a lot of people that are wicked. We see a lot of people in the news that are wicked. But I want you to understand, Satan is the best at wicked strategies. He is the best at devising them. He is the best at implementing them. There is no terror network that can implement evil plans that come anywhere close to what the Satan is doing. You see, it, it, it starts with things that we're all kind of, you know, we're on guard for things like greed and lust and hate and murder and strife and those sorts of things. But those aren't the only ways that he operates. Some of the, the kind of sneakiest ways that he operates are the ways that he invades the church with things like disunity and complaining. And he loves to just kind of see those sows, uh, see the... Sow those seeds of doubt. Sow those seeds of disunity within the church. He loves to operate in ways that are much more subtle than what we're used to. One of his favorite ways to operate is through idolatry. And I'm not talking about you getting a little statue and setting it up, but idolatry is whenever you love something as ultimate that is not supposed to be ultimate. God is the ultimate, and he is the only one who is ultimate. And so for some of you, Satan has tricked you into thinking that some of the good things that you have and that are, are wonderful things like your kids and your family or maybe your job, that some of those good gifts that God has given you, he has tricked you into thinking that those are the ultimate things that you should be giving all your love to ultimately rather than seeing them as gifts from God. And by doing so, he, he traps you into idolatry. More of us are trapped into idolatry than we have any sense of it. Our culture encourages idolatry at every, every level. Consumerism is pushed on us, right? It's all about you. Consume this, consume this. It's just idolatry at the highest level pushed on us as a culture, and many of us in the church buy into it. He is a wily enemy. But if we have the power of God, he is nothing. You see, Christ came, he said, to destroy the works of the devil. Now, the struggle 
Paul uses the word wrestle here. You guys have seen people wrestle. This is a real battle, right, where you actually get down on the ground and have to fight. This isn't kind of something that's made up. You you can't walk away from this passage and think, well, this isn't much of a big deal. No, this is a wrestle. This is a fight. And then he uses the word against over and over and over, right? It's against, 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 against. We are in a real struggle, a real battle. Paul makes it incredibly clear. Now, I want you to notice the first thing he said is that when we wrestle, it is not against flesh and blood. I want you to take a moment to think about the implications of this. As you think about, I, I don't know, for each one of us, we tend to have, as I would say, like think about something bad going on in the world. Uh, we each kind of would gravitate towards something based on kind of what your passion is and what, what you desire to see changed. Now, as you think about what that evil thing is in the world, who is it that's kind of the perpetrator and the enemy there? You know, as you think about like human trafficking, is it the traffickers that are the enemy? Right, as, you, as you think about war, is it the, the despots, the evil leaders of, of the enemy? Is, are they our enemies? Ultimately, Paul says, no, they're not. And I think that's such an essential thing for us to change in our minds, right? Is that in the context of everyday life, if you and your spouse have been fighting and going at it, are they the enemy? No, they're not. He says, we do not struggle against flesh and blood. That is not the enemy. And we lose focus. This is one of the one of the key ways that Satan tries to distract us in our warfare is he says, I'm going to create a diversion, I'm going to create a distraction so that people focus on kind of the symptom of the problem rather than going out and trying to deal with the root of the problem. I'm going to get them focused on the fleshly enemies and they're just going to attack and devour one another. When the one who's actually doing all of it is getting away behind the scenes, he's going in the back door when we're all distracted over here. You see, we can't think the enemy is flesh and blood. I think we have to work through those, the implications of that for a while if we're going to understand what that looks like. Think of it this way. If the gospel had its way with every person, every flesh and blood in the world, would we have any more enemies? You see, it's not about the people. It's about the one they're serving, right? It's about them needing transformation, not about them needing to be destroyed, But who is it against? He says it's against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's just a comprehensive description of the enemy that we have to fight. And I don't have time to kind of go through each one of the details of this, but just take it from this sense that the enemy is fighting at every level from kind of a heavenly scope to a global scope to a national, to a city, to an individual scope, that the enemy is, has plans and schemes at every single level that you can imagine, and that is who that we, we are doing battle with. It's a very comprehensive sense. One commentator puts it this way, that what we are engaged in is a war to the death with supernatural forces. We are engaged in a war to the death with supernatural forces. Well, I don't know about you, but when I get to the end of that, I say, man, I, I can't do that. Now I'm back to being strengthened in the strength of his might, right? I I need his power. That's why he says, therefore, in verse 13, take up the whole armor of God. 
When you recognize that we're, we're in a, a, a battle to the death with supernatural forces, you say, yes, I want to take up the whole armor of God. Now, first of all, he says that it's God's armor, right? It's not go and put on our armor, but it's to take on the armor of God. And a lot of what Paul draws on here comes out of Isaiah, and it's a description of what the Messiah or God himself wears. That uh, both from Isaiah chapter 11 and Isaiah chapter 15, he, or 59, sorry, he, he draws some of uh, this analogy there. And it's as if to say, look, you're my children. You get to now wear my armor. The armor that, that I wear in battle, that God wears in battle, he now passes on to us as his children and says, now you need to wear my battle, my armor in battle. And he doesn't just say, just put on some of it, but put on the whole armor of God. Now, how silly would it be to have the whole armor of God sitting there and you say, well, I'm going to go into battle, but today I'm just going to, you know, I don't really need the shield. It's kind of heavy to carry around and I'm not going to wear the shoes. I'm going to take the sword and the helmet and kind of that's it. I'll I'll just go out to battle that way. Ridiculous. God says, take it all up because you are in battle against a foe that you need all of it. Don't go to battle with your own armor or with partial armor. Now, what's the purpose of our fight? He says it in verse 11, that you may be able to stand. He says in verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. Again, to stand firm. And then in verse 14, Stand, therefore. We are called to take a stand. Right? That is his main point, is that we are to stand. In a military language, this is what it means to have ground that has been taken and to hold that ground from an enemy that is attacking you. We've just read who the foes are that are assailing us, and we have to understand that our role is to stand firm and hold the ground that has been taken. You see, when you go back to chapter 4, as Paul was talking, I was thinking, what does it mean for us to stand? And he was talking about maturity, and this is the way he described maturity. And the, the passage where he's talking about what the role of pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists and um, what, what are, all their role is, he says that what they're to do is to build up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, that's the opposite of standing, isn't it? Being tossed to and fro. And, and you, you see both here and, um, and back in chapter 4 that the battle is happening in our minds. It's the deceitful schemes. It's the things that's going to happen um, for us to be tricked and deceived and led away. And that the goal of maturity is for us to be able to stand. And not be tossed to and fro, not have the schemes of the devil come and push us back and forth, but for us to be able to stand firm. So it's the opposite of being tossed to and fro is being able to stand firm. Let's walk quickly through the weapons of our warfare. Like I said before, this would always be thought of in a corporate context. The Roman soldier would not go to battle on his own. Now they would form in all sorts of different uh, configurations, but they would go to battle together. Now, one of the funniest, um, kind of that I, well, I think so, they call it the turtle, is where a bunch of Roman soldiers would get together and they would lock their shields and then the guys behind would lock their shields over the top in this little tightly packed that looked like a turtle. And it kind of functioned that way. It moved very slowly because you're all locked together so tightly, but you could, it was almost impenetrable from arrows and so that's why they would use it that way. And they had all sorts of different configurations, but in all of them, you had to depend on all the other people around you, right? So if you're the guy that's got your shield this way, you've got to depend the guy behind you has got his shield over the top of you, otherwise something's just going to come down on, right? You all have to depend on one another. 
That's the analogy for us, that we have to know we can't try to stand alone. We have to stand together. That's why we have to be in relationship with one another. We have to learn to depend on one another. Right? When people go to battle together, they have to depend on each other. They have to know each other well enough that in the middle of the battle, they know that the guy next to them isn't going to run. Right? You have to be disciplined and locked together. There's so much to be said for us in our relationships with one another to be able to fight this battle. Now, notice that spiritual warfare is not some kind of like hocus-pocus, weird, you got to have magical, you know. You, you think spiritual warfare at first is like, okay, so is there some kind of weird exorcism thing we got to do? Or No, it's actually very what I would kind of consider ordinary Christian things, right? And that, that's where some of you, you know, you've thought of spiritual warfare as, you know, we're out. No, it's very ordinary type of Christian things. It starts with truth. It starts with understanding truth, and he compares it with the belt. And for the soldier, if they loosened their belt, it was their way of saying they were off duty. Some of us loosen our belts saying we had too much to eat. Um, you see, belts, some of you are probably wearing belts this morning because it's a nice decoration. It looks nice. Some of you are wearing it for more of a functional purpose, um, for which we're all thankful, <clears throat> if you know what I mean. Um, and so as you think about a belt, you have to think in terms of function. This was a very important functional piece, and it was the way the soldier would basically display he was ready was when his belt was cinched down, he was ready to go to battle. And it's all about starting with truth. You know, if we start with falsehood, it doesn't matter how much we fight, we're going to lose. And the battle, and the, at all these different fronts, the battle is joined today in our culture, but certainly at the battle for truth. And you have to know truth first, truth from the word of God, in order to be able to fight this battle. He then says, righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. This would go from your neck all the way down to your thighs. It was also known as the heart protector, right? It was to protect kind of everything here in the middle to protect you. And he compares that with righteousness. And this isn't righteousness as in in our right standing before God that that we get from Christ, but this is actual the uprightness of character. He says that if we are going to fight in this battle, we have to actually be people that are upright in character that display to the world what Jesus is like. Right? We actually have to live, right? be holy even as I am holy. We have to live like him in order to be able to fight this battle properly. It's actually uprightness of character. And this just speaks against all those that want to fight in a way that is completely contrary to the way that God would act. Want to accomplish God's goals in our own way. And God, he just says you can't do that. You, it, it starts with your character, with your integrity, and you will, you will be taken down in the fight if your own character and integrity isn't upright before the Lord. That's where it has to start. It starts with truth, truth, and it starts with righteousness. And then he says in verse 15 that the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of, fe- of peace. And this is fascinating. Um, the first time I read this verse, I was like, I don't really know what he means. I kind of read it a few times. I'm like, is he saying we should be ready to take the gospel somewhere? And then as I studied it more, I realized that, no, what he's saying is the comparison was for the soldiers. They had something very similar to cleats like we have, like, uh, like NFL players have cleats, uh, various sports they wear cleats. They had shoes where they put nails through them, and so they would stick down into the ground nice and solid. And if you think about it, to be able to stand firm, you've got to be able to have your feet grounded. Right? So I, the, the analogy that I have is an offensive lineman, right? that his job is basically just to stand and hold people away. And if he doesn't have good footing, 
everything's lost. If you don't have good footing, everything's lost. And what Paul says is the solid footing, the foundation which everything else is built from for our ability to stand is the gospel. That we all have to be grounded in the gospel. If you're going to do battle, you have to be grounded in the gospel. The gospel isn't something that you believed one day, you raised your hand sometime in the past. The gospel is something that on a regular basis grounds your feet, gives you the solid ground with which to stand firm against the assault of the enemy. Right? As he's going to come against us, he's going to send doubt and he's going to um, attack us and try and tell us we're not really saved. What is it we stand firm with? We stand firm with, no, Jesus died and paid for my sin. He rose from the dead. I will one day rise from the dead. And all of it, it just grounds you so you won't be moved. It's like those cleats that just dig deep into the ground so you won't be moved. It's the gospel has to be the foundation that we build from. I mean, that's just one of the crucial things that you see out of this passage. You've got to start with the gospel. And then he says, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. Not just in some circumstances. You see, the battle, we don't get to choose when we battle. Right? We, don't, we don't get to just pick the time and the place of our choosing, the battle of our choice. It's in all circumstances we have to be ready for the battle to take place. In all circumstances, be prepared. Right? Satan is going to try to trick us in ways we won't expect by people we don't expect. Do you remember when Jesus told all the disciples, one of you is going to betray me? what all their reaction was? They all went, oh, it's Judas. No. They were like, really? Is it me? Like they, they, they were clueless that right in their midst was the betrayer. We have to recognize that right in our midst are those that would betray us. Some of you are probably the ones that are in the midst of or have or are going to betray people that are sitting next to you. You may be even planning to betray them today. You see, we have to, in all circumstances, be prepared for the battle because he will come at us in all sorts of different ways. But what he says about the shield of faith, I love this, is that the, field of sh- the shield of faith extinguishes all the flaming darts of the evil one. How does faith extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one? The Lord allowed me to see this illustrated last Sunday. One of, uh, one of the spouses of one of our students at Attorney Bible College um, found out I had cancer on Good Friday a couple weeks ago. And last Sunday after service, uh, my wife and I went and visited him. And I got to watch his faith extinguish the darts of the evil one that came with cancer. I got to watch him not doubt but stand firm with confidence. I got to see an illustration that was just the most beautiful thing for me to be able to see. This is how faith extinguishes the darts of the evil one the doubts, the what's going to happen. And he just had confidence and he was able to look at me and say, I can see death more clearly and I see the brightness of Jesus. And to see his faith, it was his faith that was confident. His faith extinguished the darts of the evil one that would be attacking his wife and she had joy and confidence in the midst of it. You see, faith, the ability to see beyond the circumstances, the ability to see and the ability to know that Jesus Christ has accomplished it all, that that thing within us that sees beyond just the things we see with our eyes is able to keep us from giving in to the darts of the evil one. And it just puts those darts out, all those flaming darts. I was thinking from a different circumstance. Some of you may not be struggling with things that are along those lines. But I was thinking of the, the temptation, the, the flaming dart of the temptation towards comfort and security. And I heard a guy recently who's 
Um, he was 65 years old, and he says, you know, as I get closer to Jesus, it's like when I was younger, he was like in a, in a distance through a haze, through a fog. And as I get closer to him, I'm seeing him more clearly. Right, with his eyes of faith, he's seen him more clearly, and he's, he says, I, he just is so much more enjoyable, and I just can't wait to be with him. And he said, why in the world would I want to build a house? Why would I want to get a new car? Why do I want a new suit? I can see Jesus, and I can see him coming. You see, the eyes of faith will keep us from being tempted by all those things. The eyes of faith will, will see new creation, when, and we won't be tempted to try and live out heaven here on earth. You won't be trying to live out everything here and grasp onto things in this life. Faith will extinguish even those types of darts of the evil one. Faith is essential for us if we're going to put those things out. Faith is what allows us to look into the next world. And it's what makes everything here make sense and all the, all the lies of the evil one are exposed. Faith's kind of like, have any of you ever been on Space Mountain when they had to turn the lights on? Some of you probably have. All of a sudden the whole illusion's gone. It's like you think it's this big thing and all of a sudden you realize, man, it's this little teeny cramped little thing. It's, just, it's not very exciting anymore. That's what faith does to the lies of the evil one. They seem so big, right? It seems like you're in the middle of this galaxy and all of a sudden the light of faith turns it on and you're like, oh, that's not a big deal. Right? Faith will extinguish those things. It will just turn on the lights and expose him. Uh, we have to move quickly through a couple of these. Salvation. He says the, the helmet of salvation, verse 17. What Paul has told us that God has done in salvation, if you look through Ephesians, he has made us alive with Christ. He has raised us up, seated us with him in the heavenly places. He has delivered us from death and sin by his grace. He has delivered us from his wrath and the bondage to sin, and he has transferred us into a new kingdom, and he has raised us into a position of authority with Christ. You see, in all of that, that should give us confidence that we can fight in the battle because he has saved us, he has done all that work in us. We can now have confidence in the battle. And then he says that we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And specifically, Paul here is emphasizing the spoken word of God. Not just this word of God. And his point with the Spirit is that the Spirit of God is the one that empowers his word when it is spoken and it goes forth. And he says that's the way that we will accomplish this battle. How will this world be changed? How will we overcome evil? How will Jesus ultimately be displayed? It's by his word going forth, empowered by the Spirit of God and transforming people's lives. That's how it's going to happen. We stand firm, stand against all the evil one, and we speak forth the word of God and he empowers it and transforms lives. And if that happens, the world will be transformed. People will be transformed. You see, I, I believe Paul was kind of drawing our attention back to um, Jesus' temptation. Remember, each temptation that uh, the Satan brought against Jesus, he used the word of God to respond to him. And um, Jesus says in his last one, by every word that comes from the mouth of God, that that is what we are to depend on, what we are to live on. It's by the word of God. We wage war against the forces of evil by speaking the words of God. And then it leads us to the final thing, and this is kind of the culmination here, which is prayer. And prayer is at all times. Prayer isn't just when we're in the battle. Now, when you're in the battle, you realize how much prayer is going to drive you. But prayer is something that we do at all times, empowered by the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Right? There's a bunch of all going on here. Paul is saying we need to be driven to prayer and we need to be driven by prayer. You will really know you're in the battle when you pray. That's what I said earlier, and I just want to say it again. And then he shifts, and there's a very interesting shift that happens. For the last two verses, 
The, the picture is a group of people that are standing firm on ground that's been occupied in the midst of an enemy, right? Kind of think of it maybe like a mountaintop. And there's a mountaintop that we've all occupied and we're, we've got to stand firm and we've got to hold this ground and our enemy is assailing us. But then he says, but then there's some of us, there's some that have been sent as ambassadors, ambassadors of peace, those that, those that are sent to the enemy to bring them the message of peace. And he says the role then of those that are standing firm is to be behind them and strengthen them and empower them through our prayers. And look what Paul asked for. He says, verse 19, um, for me, right, that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth. And I love that Paul says that. Because you'd think, well, Paul, you know the gospel. Right? He was talking about is being able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. He clearly tells us. And it's like, Paul, don't you know the gospel? Why, why do you need us to pray for you that you will have the right words? And, and I love that Paul, it, it seems that Paul understood that, you know, I can't just have kind of the same cookie cutter message. And it, it speaks to us that we all need to be praying that, God, in the right circumstances, help me just communicate the gospel in the right way to this person. And Paul's saying, I... Just pray for me that the gospel, which I know and is this you know, fixed, amazing truth back here, that in my circumstances, God will give me the right words to communicate that message. Right? So I, I just, I'm going to need the right words. Would you pr- please pray that God will give me that? And then twice he asked for boldness. I'm so thankful he asked for boldness. Isn't that something we all need? And don't we struggle? And we kind of look at Paul and we just, oh, I, I can never be like Paul. You know, Paul standing up there and just proclaiming. No, we can all be like Paul. He says, you, you need boldness from God. And it is the Spirit that gives us that boldness. That is his prayer. And he says he is an ambassador in chains. I love that Paul says he's an ambassador in chains. You see, that the way that we fight and the, the, the scope of our warfare often leads to us being places like like last Sunday on a, on a hospital bed being treated for cancer. It leads us to being in chains. And elsewhere, Paul tells us that his chains were the means that God used to open the door for the gospel to go new places. You see, ultimately, kind of where I want to end with this is that for us to understand that the point of this warfare is not for us to have more comfortable lives. The point of this warfare isn't so, you know, oh, Satan's attacking me with all these sicknesses, with all these struggles at work. So if I do spiritual warfare, I won't be sick anymore and things at work will be good. No, you have to understand that the purpose of the warfare is for us to display Jesus Christ and we have a crucified Savior. Often it's going to look like for us to display Jesus Christ is going to look like suffering. The purpose isn't for us to be rescued out of our circumstances. The purpose is for us to display Jesus in the midst of our circumstances. You see, because it's the mystery of the gospel that he wants displayed. And that mystery, back into chapter 3, he says, the mystery of the gospel is that God is forming together this people for himself from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, that this multi-ethnic, multi-racial, just kind of all coming together into one people that then are this perfect mirror to display the goodness and the greatness of God. And the very fact of their diversity shows how amazing God is to bring those kinds of people together. And to bring them and to unite them together and that it displays to the world, that's what we're fighting for, right? We're not just fighting for us to feel better and, and to watch that, that young man last Sunday, 36 years old, to, to just look with joy and to say, we prayed a couple of months ago that God would use us however he saw fit and this is the answer to our prayers. And that God is using us to display himself through my cancer, 
That's what we're fighting for. We're fighting for Jesus to be displayed. And it's essential for us to be a people that crosses all sorts of boundaries, that crosses class boundaries, that crosses ethnic boundaries. It's essential to the gospel. It's not just some kind of add-on. Go back and listen to Preston's message back in chapter 2 if you want to hear it again. It is not just kind of an add-on. It is essential for us to display the gospel appropriately because it's part of what Jesus was doing to accomplish, to display what he's like to the world. Now, here's the amazing part. When we fight for God's glory, when we fight for him to be revealed, we ultimately are fighting for our greatest joy. See, on the, on the one hand, you think, well, okay, I'm going to fight for that, and that's yeah, going to be suffering, so I'll grin and bear it. But you have to recognize John Piper has done such a good job of drawing our attention to the fact that when we do that, when, when God is most glorified, we find the most satisfaction and joy. Right? It, it is in that because it's what we were designed to do. So we can't walk away, okay, I'm going I'm to fight. And... No, Paul says he, he's finding great joy in his chains because Jesus is being displayed and he finds great joy in that. I watched the young man last weekend display great joy in the midst of his circumstances. I want to end by just talking through a couple of warfare analogies and then I want to end with kind of a selfish request. So if you'll humor me with that. Here's some things I want to draw your attention to from just general warfare principles. When you're in the trenches together, you usually put your differences behind you. When you're not in the trenches is when you're usually fighting with each other. Think about how that applies. When the bullets are flying over your head, you're usually not arguing with the person who's next to you. Next to you. But on the other hand, before the bullets start flying, you better make sure that the person who's next to you isn't going to shoot you in the back when you turn your, turn your back to fight. Right? There's an importance to who fights with us, but we shouldn't be fighting with one another. Another principle is don't win a battle to lose the war. We have to have a long-term view in the things that we do. Jesus had a long-term view. He invested in 12 guys, 11 of which were the ones that kind of made it through. That, that doesn't sound, you know, if I'm going to start a worldwide global conquest, I don't just kind of have 11 guys that I leave when I die. But he had a long-term view. He knew what he was doing. Take a long-term view. Don't just win a battle to lose the war. Watch out for distractions. Watch out for diversions. Don't get distracted away. And one thing that, uh, in Tom Brokaw's book, The Greatest Generation, the, the phrase from World War II that kept coming up was that we just do our part. And I want to encourage you that we all are just each called to do our part in the battle. You're, you're, we're not all supposed to be generals. We're not supposed to come up with the plan. We're not supposed to kind of figure everything out. We're just each supposed to do our part in the everyday. Remember, this is everyday circumstances that moms in your mothering, right? Employees in your employment. I don't know where this is all going to go. Um, children in your childrening. I, don't, I didn't think that one through well enough. Um, Right? In the everyday circumstances of life, that is where you end up doing your part. Now, I'd just like to end with kind of a selfish request. Um, yesterday, I stood up on this platform, and Attorney Bible College had another graduation. And we had uh, eight graduates go out, and brings a t- our total to 78 graduates now that have gone out. And, uh, yeah. And part of how we think, part of why we started that school is because we think 
in battle terms. And we think a lot of colleges think more in terms of country club terms. And we're a boot camp. And people don't come for fancy things. People come to be trained for the battle. And part of why we battle the way that we do, part of why we train the way we do, is so people not only be well-prepared and well-grounded to go out and fight the battle, but people will also be able to do it because they're not going to be shackled with thousands of dollars of debt. And one of the main ways that we're able to do that is because of contributions, um, both corporately what you guys give to us, as well as a bunch of you individually. And I just want to say thank you. Um, I am so grateful to be able to do what I do and to see... um, not just young people, all sorts of people get trained and to go out and to join the battle and not have to worry about, well, I'm going to have to get a job because I've got $80,000 in debt. I've got $60,000 in debt. Debt debilitates and takes away from us being able to do the battle. So thank you for your contribution. Thank you for um, just corporately as well as individually. I'm so thankful. Um, And then I just want to end kind of the way Paul does. I want to ask you for your prayers, for your prayers for the graduates as they go forth because the enemy is attacking um, just in the last couple of weeks, or in addition to the husband with cancer, a couple of other just horrible circumstances, please pray for us. Pray for the students, pray for the faculty, pray for the staff. Um, pray for us because it's a battle and it, it is a joy for me to be in the battle and to see Christ glorified in these students' lives, to see Christ glorified in our faculty and our staff. Um, it is such a great joy for me. And so thank you and please pray for me and pray for all of us. Let me pray together. Lord, we desire to see Christ displayed. We want to see you displayed well in our individual lives. We want to see you displayed well in the the life of Cornerstone. Uh, Help us to be your people. Lord, help us to stand firm in the gospel. Lord, to hold the shield of faith. Lord, for those here that have been hit by the flaming darts of the evil one. I pray that you would have fellow soldiers come alongside to hold up their shields alongside them, that they would be comforted in the midst of the battle. We love you so much. We can't wait to see you face to face. We long for the day that we will be with you. We love you so much. Lord, use our praise for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.